0: Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test. Okay, so uh, happy 2020 to everyone. We are going to kick off this year talking about total shoulder arthroplasty. Um, So again, we kind of are looking at the current concepts going through this and uh, pages 54 to 68 in the current concepts of the shoulder section cover total shoulders. So um, we're going to do kind of a little summary of that and, and discuss different, um, different things when it comes to total shoulders. So first of all, reasons why a shoulder replacement may be indicated. Uh, so the first is osteoarthritis. So this could be primary or idiopathic osteoarthritis or secondary arthritis due to trauma or post-surgical arthritis. The second reason for a shoulder replacement would be an inflammatory arthritis. So um, this would be due to systemic diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, and psoriatic arthritis. And then the third reason, um, so they kind of list this out as other arthritis, which encompasses a wide range of diagnoses. Uh, So the diagnoses they note in the current concepts include atraumatic osteonecrosis or avascular necrosis, which may be secondary to systemic corticosteroid use, alcoholism, goucher disease, sickle cell disease, and irradiation. Um, Other reasons would be rotator cuff arthropathy from end-stage rotator cuff disease, and gout or pseudo-gout. Additional types of glenohumeral arthritis include arthritis associated with acromegaly, glenohumeral dysplasia, neuropathic arthropathy, and septic arthropathy. So um, just like anything else, all non-operative options should be exhausted first. Once surgery is indicated, there are multiple options including arthroscopic joint debridement with or without capsular release, hemiarthroplasty, total shoulder arthroplasty, and reverse shoulder arthroplasty. So in the current concepts, um, you know, they mention this arthroscopic joint debridement, but they then focus on the hemiarthroplasty, total shoulder, and reverse shoulder. Uh, So the decision to use one surgery over another is based on the degree and region of the arthritis, the patient's age, their demand, underlying pathology, presence of an intact rotator cuff, adequate bone, and the surgeon experience. Uh, So on pages 54 to 55, there's a discussion of surgical techniques, soft tissue balancing and subscapularis considerations. Um, I think, you know, it's important to read through those and understand the techniques. I'm not going to get into that on this episode. Um, I think it's more important that we talk about, you know, things that why the total shoulder would be indicated um, and, you know, things that are more rehabilitative rehabilitation considerations. So um, read through those things, but I don't think it's the most important information for us to cover. So um, the next section is pathology considerations. So it's important to be able to understand why the surgeon may have chosen the surgery for that patient um, and to help guide the patient expectations during recovery. So on table 10 on pages 56 to 57, it shows reported outcomes of patients who have had a total shoulder and a hemiarthroplasty based on underlying pathology. So that can give you a little bit of um, just comparison of what to expect depending on what the patient's um, diagnosis is. So um, I'm gonna go through kind of each type of um, arthritis or reason for um, a possible shoulder replacement and some of the considerations with that. So. First of all, um, osteoarthritis. So patients with primary OA and an intact rotator cuff have better active range of motions than patients with RA, post-traumatic arthritis, or rotator cuff arthropathy. Most patients with primary osteoarthritis have intact rotator cuffs, so their dynamic stabilization is typically good. Um, And there is strong evidence that a total shoulder provides a better outcome than a hemiarthroplasty. So I don't know. I mean, uh, um, how many... Shoulder replacements do you typically see? Is that something you're seeing a lot of? I see some. I, I wouldn't say I
1: see a lot. I probably see a couple a year. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, I don't know, maybe two to three a year, somewhere in there. Sure. Um, and what do you typically see? What type of surgery? I, well, when I was working in my last employer, I was seeing a lot more reverse. Mm-hmm. Um, just because that was the surgeon's experience, surgeon technique. Yeah. Now I see a lot more totals, just standard total shoulders. Okay. Uh, I get a fair amount of patients, I would say more than fresh total shoulders that have had a total shoulder in the past and I'm
0: seeing them for something else.
1: Okay. So they're definitely out there. I mean, you yeah. definitely yeah. see them.
0: Yeah. I, um, I'm not really seeing them now, but in my last job, I was at a hospital where, um, we saw a lot of joint replacements and I had quite a few and it was pretty even, I think, between the regular total shoulders and the reverse. I did not see a lot of the hemiarthroplasties, So I don't know if that was just the surgeons I was working with, or and I mean, a lot of the evidence is starting to veer away from those, anyhow, um, which you'll see as we kind of go through this. But it's definitely I don't I don't ever remember seeing a hemiarthroplasty, honestly.
1: Yeah, I think I've only seen one of those, and it was from a traumatic fra- like humeral head fracture, mm-hmm. and so they did that. Um, someone that was a little bit younger, but a lot of times, like the rehab is similar enough. I think that they are trying not to put the patient through that potentially more than once. Like if they're going to go in there and go through this. It, it's hard enough. You might as well do
0: it. Do the whole thing. Yeah. Do the whole yeah. Thing, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, um, so with osteoarthritis, I think the important thing to know is, you know, if these patients, if they have an intact rotator cuff, they have a pretty good, um, pretty good outcomes typically. So, um, the next section talks about rheumatoid arthritis. So, RA attacks both the articular cartilage and the glenohumeral soft tissues, which includes the rotator cuff tendons, long head of the biceps tendon and the subacromial bursa. So approximately 24% to 30% of patients having a total shoulder for RA have full thickness rotator cuff tears, and many have significant tendon thinning. So um, obviously with that, patients with RA progress slower due to the rotator cuff tissue being less robust, uh, which affects their postoperative outcomes. For later stage disease, hemiarthroplasty or reverse total shoulder is indicated because of the significant bone loss or proximal humeral migration due to rotator cuff dysfunction. The next section is, um, they talk about acute fracture. So um, there's kind of a lot of information here, so bear with me on this, but arthroplasty performed in patients for three and four part fractures result in less functional motion, although pain relief can be good. Uh, hemiarthroplasty is often performed in the acute post-fracture group since the glenoid is typically spared from the trauma. The technical demand on the surgeon is greater because not only is proper prosthetic placement required, but tuberosity fixation must be achieved. Hughes and Near reported that careful surgical fixation allows for active assistive movement at four to five days post-op. However, based upon the high incidence of tuberosity migration, this advice is challenged today. The rate of post-op rehab progression will be slower and determined by tuberosity fixation integrity, especially in the elderly patient, which they note to be um, greater than 70 years old. So tuberosity and prosthetic component malposition are related to poor functional outcomes. Uh, So they talk about a study uh, where patients treated with hemiarthroplasty after three and four part fractures. um, They found early radiographic evidence of tuberosity malposition in 27% of the patients and final tuberosity malposition in 33 of 66 cases. At an average follow-up of 27 months, 29 patients were very satisfied, 9 were satisfied, and 28 were unsatisfied. 70% of the patients had less than 120 degrees of active elevation. Uh, There was another study that reported similar findings in patients with failed hemiarthroplasty performed for proximal humeral head fractures. They reported malunion and component malposition occurring in 59% and 42% of the failures respectively. So patients treated with hemiarthroplasty for acute proximal humeral fracture must be followed closely. They present with greater stiffness and aggressive stretching can have negative effects. So you wanna move a little slower with these patients um, and don't be pushing that range of motion too much. Frankel et al. reported that too much passive external rotation motion, which they noted as approximately 50 degrees, could disrupt fracture healing. So multiple studies have shown disappointing range of motion return following acute fracture. Uh, There was another study they talk about, Green et al., that found that only 50% of patients treated with hemiarthroplasty for acute fractures could perform above shoulder level activities. Another consideration in this group is the incidence of nerve lesions after they've had a fracture. Um, So there's one study they talk about that reported that 67% of patients with a proximal humeral fracture had nerve injuries and persistent neurological deficits that diminished their functional outcomes. The axillary nerve is the most common nerve affected, but combinations of nerve lesions were found. A nerve lesion should be identified pre-surgery, but sometimes they have difficulty doing that just because the shoulder is so painful. Um, So these patients really should be examined pre and post-surgery for nerve lesions. Uh, So that's something to consider, um, you know, from the rehab perspective, when you get these people in your clinic, they've had this surgery, nothing's noted about a nerve injury, but if they're experiencing that numbness and tingling, or, you know, they seem to have nerve pain just making sure that you're also screening for that because um, that's something that can be missed just after the acute fracture because of the, how painful it is. Um, so I don't know. I mean, have you seen any acute fracture patients after total shoulders or hemorrhages? Sh- yeah. yeah. Is it the, like the little old ladies? That's who I've had a couple of those, like little yes. old ladies fall. I mean, we live in Ohio, so they fall on ice or that sort of thing. Um, yes. And, have a fracture. And I've actually seen, I want to say both the patients I'm thinking of off the top of my head ended up with re- reversal. They might've been totals, but one, one of the two, they were not hemiarthroplasty. So I know that they just went ahead and did the whole joint.
1: Yes, I would agree. The only hemi I've ever seen was a younger person who fell from a height
0: on mm, an outstretched mm-hmm, arm and mm-hmm. had
1: a proximal fracture. but every other total shoulder I've seen like the cases you're talking about, the elderly patient, um, has always been either a reverse or a standard total.
0: Yeah. And these people, I mean, they really do need to be moved along slowly. They have, um, you know, a lot of limitations in that range of motion. And I think that it's super important that you're upfront with expectations with these patients. And, you know, I can remember the one, one of the patients, she's like, as long as I can style my hair, that's all I care about. Even if I have to, you know, move my head a little to do it, that's fine. And, you know, we talked about what those realistic expectations are, you know, you're not going to be lifting things over your head and putting them away. You're just not going to get that overhead range of motion back in this situation. So um, I think that's a really important thing to know so that you're setting your patient up for realistic expectations after that, um, after a shoulder replacement after a fracture. So. Um, the next section, they talk about post traumatic or um, fracture arthritis. So, most often these patients have had a previous proximal humerus fracture with or without surgical fixation. The results of the prosthetic placement in patients with post traumatic arthritis or tuberosity malunion are compromised due to tuberosity malposition, dramatic soft tissue scarring or contracture, distortion of normal bony anatomy chronic nerve injuries, and chronic rotator cuff deficiency. Patients requiring a greater tuberosity osteotomy were found to have significantly less functional motion and worse outcome scores than those who did not have an osteotomy. Rehab progression will depend on whether the greater tuberosity has been osteotomized. Um, So if the greater tuberosity is spared, active range of motion can be started at six weeks and strengthening at 12 weeks. If an osteotomy is required, then active elevation and strengthening may be restricted until 12 weeks. So you're not even going to start really that active range of motion until um, closer to 12 weeks. Anything you want to add about that? I don't feel like this is one that I've seen quite as much of. No, I think. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the next section, they talk about osteonecrosis. Which uh, by definition means bone death. And this is often referred to as avascular necrosis or aseptic necrosis. Unlike most arthritis that starts in the articular cartilage, osteonecrosis begins in the subchondral cancellous bone, which collapses, altering the articular cartilage. Um, so, patients with osteonecrosis treated with shoulder arthroplasty have better outcomes if the pathology was due to steroid use versus trauma. It's just something that they know. So, again, um, just things for you to know as the clinician. If you know why the patient's coming in or why they had this osteonecrosis, it can help you guide them and what their expectations are. Um, so, the next section is they talk about shoulder instability or what they call capsulo- capsular raphy arthritis. Sorry. Um, so, a related group of post traumatic arthritis occurs in patients with primary glenohumeral instability. So these are folks that, you know, we did the instability episode, they have this instability and eventually end up with um, arthritis in that joint. So patients with recurrent dislocations can develop arthritis, but more commonly seen is that capsulorafi arthritis, which is arthritis due to surgical intervention for instability. Um, so near felt that arthritis was developed due to recurrent dislocation when the procedure performed was intended for unidirectional instability in the p- in a patient who actually was presenting with multi-directional instability. He observed that patients become unstable in the opposite direction of the surgical procedure. Non-anatomic anterior stabilizing procedures can result in a severe internal rotation contracture, posterior humeral head subluxation, and posterior glenoid erosion. So patients treated for this are typically younger um, and they're progressed carefully due to previous instability. If posterior instability was the primary problem preoperatively, then elevation stretching should be performed in the plane of the scapula versus the sagittal plane in order to decrease the stress on the posterior capsule. Forceful stretching should be avoided. And strengthening may be delayed until 12 weeks, especially if the subscapularis was found um, found altered as in a Z-plasty or augmented with a graft. anything you want to add with instability? I don't think that I've ever seen a replacement due to instability. I have not. Okay. But it makes sense how they these patients could develop arthritis. And and we want to be careful, um, you know, if they've had instability in the past to, um, to make sure that we're moving slowly with them and that things are um, healing correctly and, and they're not going to end up with more instability again. Right. So um, the next section is rotator cuff arthropathy. So, This is a result of end-stage rotator cuff failure. This results in superior humeral head migration, significant soft tissue contracture, and fixed articulation with the coracoacromial arch. Performing a standard total shoulder in a rotator cuff deficient shoulder may result in eventual, eventual glenoid component loosening. So until recently, a hemiarthroplasty was typically the preferred surgical intervention. However, the use of a the reverse shoulder is proving an excellent alternative. Uh, patients treated with the hemiarthroplasty have limited outcomes because the rotator cuff cannot be repaired. However, pain relief and improved function is expected. So you can read the section in the current concepts on this for um, specific studies. But I know for me personally, I've always seen the... Um, the reverse shoulder in the patients who have, you know, significant rotator cuff arthropathy. I'm sure that's probably what you've seen as well, right? It is, yes. Yeah, And I think yeah. I've seen more of those than standards,
1: but yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's really a nice alternative for that um, in terms of pain relief for these patients. So, and they usually have pain relief really quickly after the surgery compared to what they were dealing with before. So, Right. Um, so two goals emerge when considering pathology, rehab, and expected outcome for these patients. Um, so these are standard goals and limited goals. And you can look at pa- table eleven on page sixty where they talk about this. Um, I think they list out like the specific um, pathology and then what the um, whether they would follow standard goals or limited goals. So um, so um, with the standard goals, The patients that would fall into this category have a competent rotator cuff and deltoid muscle, adequate bone quality, and a stable joint. Patients with limited goals would be patients who have instability, rotator cuff, or deltoid deficiency, either due to an irreparable rotator cuff, poor tendinous tissue, tuberosity, malposition, or denervation. Um, So with these patients, anybody who has a total shoulder or reverse shoulder hemiarthroplasty, pain relief is always the goal. But with a limited goals group, they achieve less satisfactory function with expected active elevation of less than 90 degrees and external rotation of approximately 20 degrees. So that is not a lot. Um, And I think, you know, I guess this is maybe an okay time to mention this too. I think with shoulder replacement patients, it's important that they understand that these are not like knees and hips where you're going to get back to, you know, basically, maybe even more than what you were doing before you had your hip or your knee replaced. Um, Really, these are for pain relief. And even if you fall into that standard goals group, you're never going to have the range of motion that you had before. Um, And, you know, the shoulder replacements just, the shoulder is just a complex joint, and they just don't function quite as well as those knees and hips. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that.
1: No, when you were talking before about educating patients, that's Mm -hmm. the biggest thing I find with these is that Patients, like everybody knows somebody that had their hip and their knee and, you know, patients assume that a joint replacement is a joint replacement and they want to associate all the same kinds of healing and goals and return to function that is marketed with hips and knees. And unfortunately, that's just not the way that shoulders work. And it just takes a while sometimes for them to wrap their head around that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think having that conversation the first day with them that, you know, our goals are really for you to be able to do all of your self-care tasks. And for you to, you know, and they're going to have to probably learn to use the other arm for some things. And just setting those realistic expectations from day one is really, really important with these patients. Um, So moving on to discussing post-op rehab. um, So I'm not going to get too much into this, um, but we'll go over a little bit here. So the rehab program after a total shoulder should be individualized according to the underlying pathology. So all those things we kind of talked about before. Um surgical concerns and complications, tissue irritability, hyperelasticity or hypoelasticity, personality, demands, goals, and criteria met. So typically these patients will stay overnight at the hospital following their surgery um, and they'll be seen by an acute care PT in the hospital. They'll go over you know the important precautions and wearing their sling and all that good stuff. Um, Typically, these patients will begin a supervised program with a PT at about three weeks post-op. So Current Concepts discusses two studies that evaluated the effectiveness of a home exercise program with intermittent supervised visits. And they concluded that home-based therapy provided adequate post-op total shoulder arthroplasty therapy and reduced rehabilitation costs. So I think it's important to remember You know, like we said, this is really for pain relief. And yeah, we want to get them as functional as possible. But the research really shows that these patients can do quite well with home exercises. So they probably don't need to be in your clinic two to three times a week after their total shoulder, they can probably do a lot more at home. um, And they'll do just as well as if they're coming in for frequent visits with you. So if you look at Page 62, table 12, there's a breakdown of the four phases of rehab following a total shoulder or a hemiarthroplasty. Um, So these guidelines were developed using publications and common practice protocols for patients with standard and limited goals. So as always, you should communicate with the surgeon prior to seeing these patients uh, to learn their post-op preferences. So just like we've said with any other surgery we've talked about, um, I'm not gonna go through and read you each phase and what you should do in each phase it's really a generalization based on um, the publications that they looked at for this monograph. But at the end of the day, you need to follow what that specific patient surgeon, what their preferences and if they have a protocol, then that's the one that you want to be following. So, um, so I'm not going to read through those, but in general, um, you know, it kind of gives you a nice guideline of what to expect and and how quickly these people are going to move. So the next section they talk about are reverse total shoulders. So the reverse total shoulder is a ball and socket design where the ball is on the glenoid side and the socket is on the humeral side. So it's opposite of um, what a natural glenohumeral joint looks like. So the reverse shoulder is primarily indicated in the management of three situations related to glenohumeral joint arthritis or damage. And those include massive or irreparable rotator cuffs, proximal humeral fracture resulting in a deficient rotator cuff or revision of a previous arthroplasty that has concurrent rotator cuff deficiency. So you'll know all three of those, there's some sort of rotator cuff involvement. However, the use of a reverse shoulder arthroplasty has broadened to other situations where conventional surgical approaches may result in inferior outcomes, which is probably why you and I have both seen them more often um, in recent years. Agreed. So a recent study found that reverse shoulder arthroplasty was superior in restoring function, pain reduction, and revision rates when compared to a hemiarthroplasty in patients with proximal humeral fractures. Um, Other criteria for reverse shoulders, the deltoid must be functional, and there should be sufficient bone on the glenoid side to allow for secure screw fixation of the component. The design solves the problem of superior migration encountered with the standard total shoulder in the rotator cuff deficient shoulder because the deltoid elevates the arm as the proximal glenosphere creates a fulcrum for the distal socket to move on. So Levy et al. found patients treated with reverse shoulder arthroplasty had rapid reduction in pain and increased function at three months. Function plateaued at one year, while active forward elevation and external rotation range of motion plateaued at six and 12 months, respectively. Patients undergoing reverse shoulder arthroplasty can expect to have limited improvement of functional internal rotation compared to preoperative status. So surgical considerations, um, a superior deltoid splitting or the delto approach can be used for the reverse shoulder. If deltoid splitting is used, it must be protected in the early post-op phase since it is released from the distal clavicle and acromion and repaired during closure. It's important to remember these patients often have massive rotator cuff tears. Some surgeons may attempt to repair residual rotator cuff tendons or perform a concurrent latissimus dorsi and teres major transfer, but dramatic weakness is still expected relative to internal and external rotation. A technical challenge for the surgeon is to create the appropriate soft tissue tensioning, especially of the deltoid. So stability is achieved and optimal deltoid torque production. The most common complication of reverse shoulders is dislocation, and it's found to occur at a much higher rate when the delto-pectoral approach versus the deltoid splitting technique is used. So probably a little bit of you know detail in there that isn't necessarily the most important to know, but having a good understanding of how these work um, and, you know, what to expect in terms of muscle weakness is important. Um, again, setting realistic expectations for both you and the patient when you're setting goals for these patients, you know, you're not going to set for them to have five out of five internal external rotation strength. It's just not going to get there. Um, so post-op rehab for these patients, the rehab following a reverse shoulder is not standardized and is often dependent on surgeon preference. Some authors report short immo- a short immobilization period. Limited post-op rehab and allow patients to use their arm freely for functional activities after the initial healing process. While others propose a phased program. Commonly, patients are asked to use a sling for the first four to six weeks, and it's recommended to avoid extension and adduction of the shoulder. There is anecdotal consensus to avoid functional internal rotation, sorry, early post-operatively, since it may result in a dislocation. However, there's no evidence that this actually occurs external rotation and coronal plane abduction should be discouraged due to instability. Patients with good deltoid function are allowed to use their arm for waist level activities for the first six six post-op weeks. Thereafter, they're allowed to use their arm as tolerated. Passive range of motion begins within seven to 10 days post-op in deflection and external rotation, which is restricted to zero to 30 degrees initially beyond four to six weeks, elevation can progress and strengthening typically begins after twelve weeks um, so there's also a four page four phase i'm sorry four phase rehab program that's described on page sixty eight um and also on page table fourteen on page sixty eight shows reported outcomes following reverse shoulders so um So yeah, mostly the internal rotation is what we want to be careful with, with these patients. And we don't want to progress external rotation too quickly, but otherwise, um, you know, those they're allowed to use the shoulders for anything, you know, waist level for those first six weeks. So they're able to start using that arm pretty early on, um, which is good for, you know, not losing hand and elbow strength and that sort of thing. So is that generally what you've seen in the rehab protocols for these patients?
1: Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. One thing I was going to add on there about dislocations is I think those patients, you know, that kind of scares them a little bit. And if they have a true dislocation, they're going to know it. I've had two, though, of the shoulders that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, they aren't necessarily, they were not necessarily totally dislocated, but they were subluxed enough mm-hmm. that, you know, they had done just a little too much. Mm-hmm. You know, they think, okay, I'm below waist tight. That means I can kind of start to like, you know, something as simple as putting on their pants, pulling their pants up really truly, depending on how tight there, requires some internal rotation, right. potentially forcefully. Yeah. And so I uh, two patients I saw didn't necessarily dislocate after this, but they had subluxed and they needed it needed repair. Mm-hmm. So I think I would just be, you know, the first few times you're seeing these people, again, in addition to that education, I just make sure you're paying extra attention to how the joint's positioned. Um you know, when you're kind of manually arranging them, make sure things feel like they're moving smoothly and appropriately. Um, you know, it may not be as obvious as you would think a dislocation is. Right.
0: Yeah. And I think too, explaining to them, like, what internal and external rotation are in, and comparing that to their daily activities. Cause it's one thing just to show them like, Oh, it's reaching behind your back, but they're not thinking that when they're going to pull their pants up. So you know kind of going over a couple specific examples i think sometimes helps people apply that information a little better to their own life so something right else i would say dressing
1: like pants the other big one that is seat belts
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: reaching behind them or reaching across them for the seat belt depending if they're in the driver or the passenger seat what arm they had done yeah. i mean that's another one that doesn't seem like a very resistive
0: activity but if that gets caught or anything yeah it's no good right yeah absolutely Um, all right. So, I mean, just to kind of summarize the success after a total shoulder is dependent upon surgical and rehab expertise. Effective communication between the therapist, surgeon and patient is essential. Um, also knowing the underlying pathology and the type of surgery the patient had, is helpful to determining the likely outcome of the surgery. Um, so, you know, the main points again, I think for studying for sure, know these different pathologies and what, um, how that would affect their rehab process and and their outcomes. Um, And then clinically, you know, making sure that you're educating these patients and communicating with them on what realistic expectations are after a total shoulder. So is there anything else that you wanted to add? I don't think so. No. Okay. So as always, if you guys have questions, go ahead and send us an email. Um, Again, I don't think there is a specific MedBridge program on the total shoulder um, but there's the section is pretty detailed in current concepts that's a really great place to review this information Uh, in the next episode we're going to do we're going to talk a little bit about AC joint injuries and then we'll finally move on from the shoulder (laughs) there's a lot
1: of shoulder stuff that's really important though so absolutely it is one of the more involved current concepts but it's one that's outlined pretty well So if you haven't looked at it, I I would strongly encourage you to take time for that one. Yes,
0: absolutely. All right, perfect. If you don't have anything else, then we'll wrap this one up and we'll talk next time. All All right. right, thanks. Bye.